We know the kitchen is where it all goes on. We chew the fat, make all of life's big decisions and eat straight from the tin when no one's watching. Join me, Anna Barnett, as I head straight to the heart of our guest home, where I swoon over interiors. I'm impressed by the sheer scale of a fridge and cover the most organised of freezers. We dig deep. Discuss career highs, career lows, condiment shelves and so much more. There's of course plenty of serious food chat. Each week we'll finish things off with our guests' best sandwich efforts and possibly a snoop in their fridge. This week's guest brings me to the southwest of England and to a homecoming of sorts for this chef, where his latest venture finds him breathing new life into an old ironmongery. 2021 saw his first solo endeavour, the 30-seater restaurant Ossip awarded its first Michelin star, a mere six months after opening. He's since gone on to launch the old pharmacy just next door. Think deli, come wine bar and fresh produce plucked from his very own allotment, which is how today's guest finds himself splitting his time. Winning his first Michelin star at just 24 before going on to open and head up two more London-based restaurants before his departure out of the city to embark on two solo projects and all before turning 30 means the trajectory of this chef's career is one to watch, keep up with and more importantly, experience. My guest this week is Merlin LeBron Johnson. Merlin, welcome to The Filling and to your own kitchen. Thank you very much. How Happy are you? Happy to be here. Very good. <laughs> Happy yeah. to be in your own kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've just, well, I've just popped down and seen you at the old pharmacy, uh, which is just next door to Ossip. It's so beautiful in there. Uh, like, tell me a bit about kind of set the scene. Can you kind of give us a bit of a description of the old pharmacy, which you've kind of not long opened and then Ossip as well? Yeah. Know. So we, we're in our third week now. We've just been open weekends. And right now it's a, a sort of snapshot of what it will eventually be. So the plan is for it to be during the morning, a place where you come and get coffee or cake or pastry. And then during the day, it's like a sort of deli shop, um, kind of a pizzeria inspired by those little, when you were in sort of regional France or Italy, those little shops that they have in every village that kind of sell a little bit of everything. You can get a coffee, a sandwich, um, some dried stuff and and then throughout the day it sort of morphs into a more of an evening space a wine bar of cider local beers and we'll do a sort of kind of like a small plates menu yeah it's so beautiful in there as well so I mean not just the cakes and which I've just bought mm. loads of <laughs> and just had my first cookie which um I think for the last two months, I've not eaten any sugar. So if I'm a little overexcited, it's down to you and that cookie. Um, but tell us, like, I kind of have read a bit about you and your kind of keen eye for design and aesthetic and architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, how much has that influenced and how much um, kind of control and, you know, control did you have over the design of the pharmacy and also OSIP? Like, they're both so beautiful. Oh, thank you. So, um so the old pharmacy, um, lots of people have asked me that actually. And Damn it. <laughs> uh, I didn't, I had 100% control. I didn't use anybody to help me design it. Oh, and really? What is that we, green called? What's the color green? I, I want it to know, have a crazy like, name. You know, like hundreds of people have asked me what the green's called and I can't remember. Secret green. And my painter came in the other day and I was like, oh my God, thank God you're here. People keep asking me about the green. What is it? And she couldn't remember either. So It's like a grassy, grassy green or, or yeah. a moss kind of green. So it's it like matches a really... my trainers, 
So um, you were in Thailand. So I was wearing these trainers <laughs> when I when I when we were doing the swatches, and I was like, I'm going to take the one that matches my trainers. This is true. This yeah. is true. Um, it's so beautiful, and then you've kind of got this like gorgeous wood paneling. It's very simple, yeah. but kind of dried flowers hanging, and then all these incredible. You've kind of got that window seat with the stalls, and then all the fresh produce. Yeah. And so, so with Osip, I had a really clear vision of exactly how I wanted it to look. And I didn't have that at all. The old farm. Where did that I've, come from? Where did that vision? Like, what had you been somewhere? What inspired you? Like, I don't know. I feel like um, the restaurant Ossip is like a, it's like this big puzzle where all the kind of different pieces come together. So it's not just about the design. It's like the uniforms, the plateware, the ceramics. And once you start buying stuff, did I read that the sorry that the yeah. uniforms are Studio Nicholson? Exactly. My husband's yeah. obsessed with those trousers from there. I'm obsessed with Studio Nicholson. It's, as well. Uh, like ex- it's expensive. I mean, very nice. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So uniforms are from Studio Nicholson. Yeah. So it's like those kind of turquoisey booths type, well, not booths, but like, yeah. What is it? How would you describe it? Bon- bonquettes. bonquettes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the plateware, the artwork on the walls. Once you start, and I think we did this with the old pharmacies. When you start buying things that you like, you sort of building. It becomes like the pieces to a puzzle, and you yeah. kind of get an idea of what you need to add or subtract to make it this sort of cohesive whole of something that looks really nice but I think with with Ossip I kind of had an idea of what the end result would look like and I did brief the interior designers yeah and then they they took my ideas and they did an incredible job and the old pharmacy it was a really nice room to start with and we did nice paneling and then I just thought I'd put in the things that are essential. So yeah. the kitchen, the cupboards, and the kind of the, the working equipment. So it's a working space. You want people to feel like they're in a, a functional kitchen, yeah. but it's also a shop. And then once we put the produce in, that's when it really came to life. And actually, so there isn't really a design. There's no decoration as such. The the, the, the produce is the decoration yeah, and the kitchen equipment. Because also, I this is my first time in Bruton, but um, it's like the building itself is really beautiful. Like what era is that? Is that like Georgian or is it like pre? I'm trying to, it's like so beautifully ornate on the front. Like it's, it's both your buildings. 15th century building, is it? I think. But like um, quite a lot of the buildings here are different parts of the buildings have been renovated at different stages. Right. So some of them are like, Parts of it are from the 15th century. Parts of it are, were done later on, so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a jumble. But 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 it's listed. Yeah. Um, and any limitations? Because I'm dealing with listed at the moment. Yeah, you can't, really, can't really do anything. You, just can't, you can choose that paint color, and that's <laughs> yeah. it. That's your lot. Yeah. So I should definitely say that I'm I'm extremely excited to be out of London mm-hmm. and in Bruton with you in your home. Um, I have to say also Ossip has been I've I've still not actually eaten at Ossip Mm. and it's really been on my radar the other thing that's really exciting about Ossip is that there's rooms above right that you can come and stay at and kind of outhouses it am I right at the back yeah there's a few cottages there's rooms above so I feel like that's my favourite thing to do to make kind of a dinner out turn into a weekend away yeah is that kind of the clientele that you get or is it locals like what's the is it kind of just everyone we've got a surprisingly kind of strong local following i say surprisingly because i didn't expect that i I thought that people would perhaps local people would perhaps see it as a special occasion place but they they kind of see it as their place um there's a sort of sense of ownership that the locals have for for us which is really sweet and um they've really supported us and kept us going through the all the lockdown stuff you know because it's great having the people that come from london and the day trippers and yeah but you know when we went into lockdown, obviously they weren't there. So yeah. it's a really nice mix. And I would say during the week, we get quite a lot of local people. Yeah. And then there's a lot of out-of-towners and people traveling on the weekends. So it's a really nice mix, yeah. actually. Probably 
50-50. Okay. Yeah. And just for kind of my future planning, mm-hmm. um, how, uh, which is all what, you know, life currently is just about future planning. Yeah. Like how far in advance do I need to book if I want a room? And also I really want, I like the thought of having breakfast by OSIP. That's, yeah. that's what happens. And what does that breakfast look like? Just before I kind of put the credit card details down. Uh, so the restaurant at the moment is crazy. You need to book like three or four months in advance for dinner. Okay. Um, for, but you we're do only lunch. open four days a week. Right. And we only do. Oof, this is not. We good only news. serve about twenty-eight people in an evening, which is why we're so booked up. Lunch right, right. is a lunch you can book. You only need a couple of weeks. Okay. Uh, and then the rooms, because there's great. only at the moment there's only ten. Okay. You can you bring like, dogs? Yeah, you can bring dogs, but not to yeah. the restaurant or to the. Re- <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah, we we just take it on a case by case basis with dogs. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, yeah. We generally say we don't accept it's... dogs, but dogs have been known to eat in the restaurant. Okay. Not, eat, not actually but, eat. But, I mean. I have taken my dog to dine out for particular birthdays. Yeah, but, it yeah. happens more at lunch than dinner. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. Um, so I've got to come for lunch. And the, the rooms get booked up really far in advance as well. Right. But then it's, I don't know, it's weird. We're, bo- we're fully booked for the next, well, obviously we, we open in May and then we're fully booked May, June and July. But there are a few random days that we're not. Okay. But yeah, and the same with the hotel. But generally the hotel's pretty booked up for okay. like six months or something. And the breakfast is um, yes. its kind of like a Somerset meets rural France. I don't know. There's Ooh. inspiration from kind of staying in like little, um, what do you call them? Like table d'hôte or gites in, yeah, in gites. France. Um, so we do things like really creamy rice pudding and freshly baked yeah. brioche and buns and loads of jams, preserves. We make our own ham, boiled eggs. We don't do like a full English or, you okay. know, it's all stuff that we, we kind of make, fresh juices, teas, coffees. Is the roasted twig coffee tea roasted. even? <laughs> what, is it, what am I drinking? No, we don't serve Ro- roasted twig tea, but we do, we do make our own. We do make our own tea. You do we, make we your grow tea. our own herbs and we make our own herbal blend, which is actually really good. Yeah. And what type of herbal blend is that? Oh, it's got like 35 different plants in it. Yeah, so it's it's just like herbals, you know. So calendula, I don't know that one. Calendula, marigold, <laughs> yeah, yeah. tajete, um, sometimes even things like lavender. Lots of lemony things: verbena, lemon balm, hyssop, about eight different types of mint. Okay. Yeah, amazing, yeah. delicious. Yeah. You grew up in Devon and worked at several revered rural restaurants across Europe before heading to London and launching Portland, Clipstone, and then The Conduit. Mm-hmm. What did those early years of training look like and how did they influence your approach to food? Yeah, I would say it was my work abroad that had the strongest influence on the way that I cook now. And do you and speak French? I speak yeah. French, yeah. So I lived in, I spent three years in Switzerland, one year in France, and two years in Belgium. And for the most part, I worked in like really like they were pretty much all Michelin star restaurants, but incredibly classical French cuisine, like the kind of classical cuisine that you don't see anywhere in the UK really anymore. Yeah. Or or ever really did like so, so kind of maybe somewhere like the Gavroche is the only uh, example. And do you, are you passionate about that style of cooking? Do you like that style yeah. of food to eat? Yeah, I've always been obsessed with the kind of the culture, French culture, but especially around food and wine and the history of, of, of French cooking and gastronomy. and Yeah. I was particularly jealous about the Rick Stein kind of as he traveled through the, yeah. the various it's regions. It's so romantic. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It is a really... It's sort of... It, yeah, you kind of think like, oh, I wish we had this culture, you know, but, but we do share a lot in common, you know, if we go back further than 
you know, the, the First World War, we, we did have a bit more of a kind of culinary history and we shared a lot of similarities, you know, with the French, but... They really prioritise yeah. it out there, though. They're kind of three courses at lunch. Yeah, which, for sure. Which I'm all for. The way I learned to cook is a mix of, like, ultra-traditional French cuisine and then I ended up working at a restaurant in Belgium that was, like, super progressive. And it wasn't progressive in the sense that it was, like, it was still work- looking at very traditional techniques. There wasn't, like, lots of fancy gadgets or it wasn't, like, molecular. But in terms of the kind of philosophy, it was very forward-thinking. That was... The, the chefs there would kind of like grandfather, father had worked there, the son had then taken that was, over. That was a place in France. Oh, was that yeah. Chamonix? Okay. Yeah. And then I worked in a place called Indewolf in Belgium. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Was, um, That's what I thought was the scenario. It was like, you know, really focusing on, on vegetable cooking and foraging. and Which is probably quite early days because it closed in 2016. Yeah. And I guess was open, I think I read, for 12 years. So mm. that was probably kind of really early doors in terms of... Yeah, it was part of that sort of Noma Favacan yeah. movement. Yeah. Magnus yeah. kind of vibe. And would you say that that was kind of the place that, that spurred you on to kind of take a bit of a different direction? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think most of what I learned working abroad that I kind of practice now, I, t- I sort of took from there. Yeah, I, I guess I'm always curious how much chefs take from previous places they've worked and then how much you feel the need to interpret it, it differently to make it your own. Like how, because yeah. I think it must be hard, surely, I don't know, uh, to always kind of be reinventing the wheel or trying to create something new. Like, is that your direction is that what you aim to do to create something unique every time or is it about just doing kind of dishes because you you don't do kind of very classic dishes in your restaurant they, they do have a bit of a twist or you you know something maybe a bit unexpected yeah I think there's, it's a really for me is a really strong combination of respect for tradition and also like an eye on sort of innovation and for me food is very like visual it's something that's, that's very can be very emotional um and it's that sort of mix of I like to respect tradition, but I also like to take tradition and put my little twist on it. And one of the one of the main reasons I went abroad to learn to cook instead of learn to cook in England, even from a very young age, I had when I when I started cooking, I felt like in the UK there were a lot of chefs doing quite similar food. So it was a conscious decision to kind of to go and train yeah. and work abroad. And- I almost felt like quite often you couldn't tell necessarily tell one restaurant from the next in terms of the style. And, and, and the food was amazing. You know, the food was really progressive back then. I, I was started cooking uh, 15 years ago or something. And I, But anyway, I had this idea that I would go abroad and I would learn skills and techniques and ideas that weren't being done in the UK and bring it back so I could have my own style. And the chef, the chef that I worked for in Belgium really sort of imparted on me just before I left it to sort of the importance of having your own identity, which is a lot easier said than done because obviously as a young chef, you're so heavily influenced by the people you've worked for yeah. and also the people you look up to. And certainly now I feel like I'm starting to really find my own style. But even, you know, I don't make, I don't worry too much about it. Ultimately, I try and cook food that inspires me and makes me happy. Yeah. And I think that eventually, if not already, it sort of becomes your own, if yeah. you, you know. But because of the way that we produce and grow our own food and because of where we are, it sort of forces us to have a slightly different identity because our identity comes from what we grow and what we're producing and what we're making here. In Somerset, yeah. It's not like in London where you see a lot of restaurants, you see when it comes in season, it's like the same project. Everyone's cooking the same produce. They all work with the same suppliers. Yeah. Um, Because it's really hard in London to to get like really interesting and unusual produce. so here it's a bit easier to, to sort of... What's the difference? What are you getting down here that we've not got up in London? I think I've, I really struggled in London to find <laughs> growers that were growing interesting... 
vegetables okay. and fruit in the UK using organic or biodynamic practices that could supply a busy London restaurant right. five, six days a week and sustain that sort of quantity. There, right. there wasn't, there, there actually just wasn't any. You know, yeah. I, I would use people for bits and bobs, but really I was buying from wholesalers like Natura and stuff who are great too. Yeah. Now there's this amazing farmer called Flourish. Yeah. Flourish Farm. I've and actually they, seen you tag. Re- yeah, yeah. And they're really great. They're really growing um, with restaurants. And, and are they based in Somerset? They're based in Cambridge. Oh, in Cambridge. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's really cool. But there wasn't really that when I was there. So our menus or our, the, what we cook is basically made up of produce that we've grown ourselves and a few things that are produced by people for us. And that's like a huge privilege, I think, as a chef. And it's taken some sort of building, but that sort of defines the way we cook. Um, and have you then kind of taught yourself horticulture and like you know or is it as simple as like we'll just plant these seeds and uh, <laughs> see sad. what happens uh, sadly not but there was a bit of that um, i should I'm, actually know I more worked. my dad's a gardener <laughs> this is terrible i'm like being really yeah. kind of dumb about this i work i've been working with i have like a project manager who is accompanying me on my sort of growing journey so we, we've now taken on more land and he's kind of he's there to advise me along right. all, the, all the way but there's obviously been loads of mistakes and and like it's it hasn't been as easy as one would have hoped, yeah. but I think I made really good progress in in, in a short space of time. I've have, learned a lot. It's called the biggest, the big little farm, or the biggest little farm. It's a documentary. I it. Have you seen? Yeah. Isn't it? It's, it's like really it's, it's yeah. amazing, isn't it? And yeah. you just you realise the kind of ecosystem of nature, which will kind of take care of itself. Yeah. And you you know are you kind of farming in that way in terms of letting nature? You know, you bring in the sheep and they eat this and they stop that and. The peaches grow. Um, <laughs> you know, as simple as that. I wouldn't say it's that sophisticated yet. I think okay. we're just concentrating on vegetables. And someone asked me in the shop today. They said, "Oh, you know, are your vegetables organic?" And I said, "Well, I don't really, I don't really know. I mean, I just, I just grow. I mean, we don't use any pesticides or sprays or chemicals. I don't even know how to use yeah. those things or, or where I'd apply them because the way I've learned to grow is." literally just working with nature and you know compost and horse manure basically yeah so we you know we sow organic seeds and a little bit of water and you know we look after them we protect them against pests using things like netting or whatever and then the vegetables they, they've been pretty good so They're far growing. i don't you know, they were I don't looking really, good today i can't i can't really be more more technical yeah. or, or give a better explanation but yeah we we sort of i think that hopefully it will evolve into you know we want to work with livestock eventually and i really want to make my own honey so i want to get some bees that's, yeah that's probably the next are you the next into stage. um flavoring honey because i imagine that would be something like a vanilla honey i've seen as a thing actually i'm a really big fan so is my husband of truffle honey on yeah. cheese just that always yeah, I think that... Um, or you're just going to keep this really simple. You're like, why are you ruining this already? Well, what's really interesting about natural raw honey is that the the honey, the flavour of the honey is, is so different depending on what blossom the, the yes. bees have been. So like if you have like an you know, apple orchard honey or from like really floral wildflower yeah. honey, whether it's from, you know, if it's from the summer and it's from like a wildflower meadow, like you can really taste that. Yeah. So it's almost like if you then... If you've got a honey that's so pronounced, and so precise in its, so nuanced in its flavours, what you probably wouldn't want to add anything to it. Yeah. It'd be a shame. But then, if you've got quite a plain honey, then it, I, I can see. You know, I, I put things like elderflowers and meadowsweet yeah. and stuff in honey. We bought back um, quite a lot of honey from Greece, and yeah. they um, there's like a lot of wild thyme, and yeah. so it's quite famous. I know, for, I know exactly. Yeah, that's, um, that's super good. It's very yeah. delicious, and so it's kind of there's actually one place that we go back to in Greece. 
on one of the islands called Milos. And mm-hmm. um, I've been to Milos. Have you? Yeah. I wonder if we've been to the same place, but it's surrounded by wild thyme and you wake up in the morning and when we've kind of gone late in the year, um, it's been, you kind of get that mildew in the morning, you can just smell all the wild mm. thyme that just surrounds. I'm trying to remember if, it, I think it was Milos where like one of the places where lots of people go and eat, it's kind of like, it's almost like at the end of the road. It's like a sort of bottom of some, almost the edge of a cliff. Yeah. Uh, but it's quite, it's quite low down next to the sea and they have, like most places around there, they have those lines where they have all the octopus yeah, like, yeah, hanging. hanging, drying in the wind. And it's like super simple seafood menu. Um, the Greek islands yeah, have something Milos is special. quite well known for food, isn't it? It is. And do you know what? This year, because we actually, the year prior to, so last year we went to Milos and we also went to Sifnos. So, I've been there too. So we went yeah. Milos and we went to Sifnos. What do you think about the cats? Uh, you know, predatory. Um, it's slightly petrifying when you're eating and then you feel sorry for the little kittens. What yeah. do you think? You haven't tried to take any home. Rescue. I haven't. Have you rescued? Are you rescuing we cats? We were staying. I can't remember if it was me I've or I've got a dog Sifnos. that does not like cats. There was a cat living in our Airbnb and the, the, the owner of the Airbnb was like, sorry about this cat. And there was this pregnant, there was this heavily pregnant cat. And then she was like, oh, don't worry about the cat. And uh, it doesn't live here. It just sort of lives it's, here. Yeah. yeah. And then while we were there, the cat gave birth to like six of the most gorgeous little kittens oh, but it was starving it had no food and we were just like oh my god we've got, res- we got to rescue this family of cats but obviously we, we couldn't take them back with but did us. you start feeding the cats yeah so we yeah. cooked fish on the barbecue and, and then just um, let them go for it Not all the of the fish carcasses and bones we, we, we took to a special spot for the cats and all the cats from the mountain just yeah. came and had like a, a banquet yeah do you know what they are actually quite good out in Greece because even though there are a lot of cats they do like we this one spot that we go to in Milos um, called Skinopi Lodge and it's mm-hmm. three little villas on the top of this kind of rock you have to take a little four by four to get there it's all very lovely there's steps down to the water um, and there's yeah there's this guy down by the bay that just you hear him like banging a metal tray and like all the cats come and that's dinner time mm. but at this little nice. place there was shadow the little black cat and mm. um they said yeah this is shadow she's just here mm. and so you're like every day like shadow's just hanging out and you're like how do we feed like yeah what's and so you feed the cat and mm. <laughs> and the cat stays with you all day long follows yeah. you around um but yeah i don't know you kind of feel bad that you just want to make sure you just want to double check that they're being fed but in a restaurant it's a bit different because there are quite a lot of cats yeah yeah. Okay. But <laughs> we've you just didn't got to tell me this podcast was going to be about, about cats. About cats. Oh, and you didn't Greek know. Islands. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, what did food look like for you growing up? What would you consider to be home comfort? Um, and do any of these kind of make it into the restaurant, or you know, or play a big part in what you eat now, day to day? I didn't really grow up with. I, although we, there were times when I was growing up that we ate well. We. There wasn't really an emphasis on sort of food in as, as a sort of food was more sustenance as opposed to sort of laboured over. Yeah, or it wasn't you know we didn't grow up in a sort of gastronomic family. You know, yeah, we yeah. we just ate and we ate. My parents didn't really have any money, so that we just sort of ate whatever food they could afford to feed us, and and a lot of the time it was vegetables. But I think that my parents wanted to make sure that we ate well you know that we we ate nice vegetables you know um local local vegetables we didn't eat a lot of meat and fish purely because we couldn't afford it or at least good quality stuff so we just we just had a lot of pulses and my mum would make so many soups and stews i just remember soups stews broths 
How and do you feel about those now? the soups would always have, <laughs> like the previous meal would get, so it For was like, like the next day. Yeah, so it was like a reworks. soup cycle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And Starts as a broth, ends up as a stew. Yeah, they would have like last night. <laughs> Friday, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so and we had a lot of that. And my dad would make, we had an apple tree, so dad would make apple crumble. That was all he made. He made apple crumble and That's good. pheasant casserole. He used to go every week to the farmer's market and he'd buy two pheasants. They were quid each. And that was pheasant casserole. That was all he cooked. And That's still um, quite kind of adventurous. That, That's like... Yeah. But do you know what I mean? It wasn't like, it wasn't out of them being like gourmet. Yeah. My dad wasn't like, hmm, what should we have for dinner tonight? Pheasant casserole. It was more like <laughs> yeah. the pheasant was the cheapest thing you could buy in yeah, the yeah. farmer's yeah. market. And it was, and it, you know, it, that was home cooking and, and it was nice. Yeah. We we got the first, what well, I would say the biggest influence on the work at now was we grew up in a place called Buckfast Sea, which is where, where um, it's near Totnes, which is more well-known. Riverford Farm is near, is right, in right Buckfast Lee. Yeah. So I, I used to... I used to be good friends with the the sons of um, the guys who started Riverford Farm, and um, we got a box boxes from them as they were when they were just testing out the scheme, and they just grew their own vegetables yeah. in a few fields locally, and they were supplying the local community. And it was you know you pay five pounds and you just get a box of whatever vegetables they picked, and you obviously didn't choose. And back then that was something completely new, and now they they, they basically invented that that yeah. box scheme, which is now national and people doing it all over the world. And and it was quite interesting. Because every week we get this box of vegetables that that were just whatever whatever had been picked, and because we we lived in the countryside and we were surrounded by Riverford Farm fields, we'd be out playing, and you'd see like turnips or parsnips or cabbages growing, and then they'd end up in the box on your table, and that's what Mum would cook with, and she you know she'd just cook. She she was working a lot, and she'd come home, and she'd always just cook something really quickly. But we ended up eating what was grown around us by sort of default, and it yeah. was she, we probably did it out of because it was easier. We didn't have time to go shopping, so yeah. it was cool. You got this box, and and that's kind of how I cook now. Weirdly, you know, yeah, yeah. like we don't choose what you know we 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 cook with what's what's grown locally, and and we don't you know we don't have the luxury of or have the inclination to order you know things that are not in season or things that aren't grown locally and so, so it's about really making that you don't what if what if you kind of be like oh you know what i really want to make this and it's a bit more exotic or the fruit's more exotic would you just say this no, actually I, i'm not um i'm not as strict about it as one you know I, I do it because actually for me it it's a natural way of cooking yeah and actually i would joke that in some sense we grow everything anyway so like it's not like it's hard you know, like uh, there's a, some of the best dairy products in the world are in Somerset. Some of the best meat I've ever tried is here. You know, we, we work with this guy that produces trout in an aquaponic farm. And when I order trout from him, he literally plucks a trout out of the water and brings it to us an hour later. The vegetables that we grow, we pick that morning and they go on our menu. I mean, that's like a dream for a chef. Yeah, so it's not like course. it's hard. That being said, if I want to, if, if a di- I feel like a dish needs some lemon zest, I'm not going to, you know... I'm not going to... Is that an Amalfi lemon or Sicilian lemon or... Oh, yeah, probably, yeah. Um, I'm not going to stop myself from, you know, if I feel like it will really enhance the dish. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to... But you wouldn't necessarily build the dish around some kind of exotic mango. No, never, or, yeah. never, never. Okay. No, we, we, there are, we, I think mango is probably a step too far. I don't know. Yeah, we we tend to basically always build the dishes around local produce, but... I'm really trying to dig deep with this. But what about this one? We don't we don't serve pina coladas or um, uh, coconut. We serve coffee and chocolate, you know. Yeah. So it's So not, you're importing Yeah, something. the sugar we don't grow. Yeah. You know, there's there's uh yeah, we're not gonna pretend that every single thing that enters our kitchen was was yeah. produced in our own garden. But 
As close that, to, that's, yeah, that's yeah. the ethos. Yeah, and, and not out of making some big song and dance out of it. It's just because that's just the way we do things. Yeah. And that's that's what inspires us. And, also and we don't look down on anyone else for not doing yeah. that. Or, yeah. But I guess, like your locality, it makes sense. Why wouldn't you be mm-hmm. like using the resources around you? Like if, sure. that would be crazy for you to be going, oh, let's, you know, I want to import this, import that. If you've got this amazing pool of like, yeah, products. Somerset has always been almost like the larder of the, you know, it, it's... It's always been a very productive part of the UK in terms of agriculture and farming. And so we're, we're super lucky, super yeah. privileged. Um, we don't work with a lot of fish uh, because, you know, we're not that close to the sea. But again, occasionally we get some beautiful scallops up from Dorset or something. And we're not going to we're not going to be snooty about no. it. Because, <laughs> you know, like, so I guess there's like the pig group. They kind of do that 25 mile menu. And it's yeah. and it, I think it is really nice for people to actually know and kind of understand, you know, this is John who makes this, you know, well, type this, of charcuterie. This, or, I think it's like it's a really nice nice ethos to have you know for your, I, I have a producing. philosophy about about food and drink and also just experiences in general is when you say for example you're on holiday and you go you're in France or Italy and you, you go you end up stumble upon a vineyard and you meet the guy who makes the wine he tells you about the wine how passionate he is and then he gives you some wine to take away so you take that wine home and you drink it three months later with some friends and you'll be telling your friends, oh, this wine's incredible. We met the winemaker. It's the best wine in the world. I love it because you've emotionally or spiritually connected with that yeah. person, that place, that product. To them, it's just wine, right? Yeah. And Because it probably isn't the best wine in the world. But I think by connecting with like an ingredient or a product, by understanding the story, the provenance, having been there, somehow it tastes better, you know? And I feel like it's a bit like that when I grow my own vegetables and I pluck a carrot out of the ground and I eat it. I say to myself, God, this is like the best carrot I've ever tried. And it's not, right? But to me it is because I've I've grown it and (laughs) I've picked it. And I feel like that's the beauty of, you know, like that philosophy, like you said, the pig or, you know, people connecting with the food that they're eating. It makes it taste better. It's just simple. You know, it really does. Like even if it even if it's all psychological. It, it doesn't matter, you know, yeah. like it's about connecting with the food that you're eating or, or the wine or, or whatever. It's more romantic. It is. Is there a time that you could pinpoint as the moment when you knew you wanted to work in food? Did you ever kind of waver from that? And how challenging has the path been to launching your own restaurant and the epicerie? Um, Are you calling it the epicerie? What do you call it? The old pharmacy? I was. I don't know. If I'm I like epicerie. I like epicerie too, but French. then some people, yeah. The funny thing is, is we, I, I love French food and French culture but I've spent a lot of time in Italy in the last few years especially Sicily yeah. and for, for whatever reason I, the, there's the, the Italian influence has actually taken over the French influence right. the so, what should it, so what should it be called now? I don't know yeah. what's the equivalent? I don't know do you think? I've no idea was there a time in my life I knew I wanted to be a chef? I sort of fell into cooking I sort of fell into cooking by accident I was a bit of a naughty boy uh, at school and that's quite common with out, a lot of chefs, you got know. Kicked out of a load of schools, <laughs> and I ended up in a. I ended up going to a special. I'm just going to call it a special school. Um, and one of the m- most extraordinary things about the school is that lessons weren't compulsory, and so I didn't go to any. And I ended up cooking because the school had a really good chef, and most of the students had school lunches, but you had to pay, and it was quite expensive. My parents couldn't afford it, so I'd have. I was like one of the only people that had packed lunches. Which, which was just horrible. So, like lunches at school is quite a traumatic thing. You've really got to get that right, I think. Yeah. Like before you have kids, you just need to know that you can just make sure that if they if they want to have the school lunch, yeah. <laughs> that you're not packing them up. Like, yeah, you can do that. Exactly. I feel like that is one of the traumas of being a kid, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. So I struck a deal with the chef that 
I would help her prepare lunch. Entrepreneurial. Yeah, in return <laughs> to be able to eat it. Nice. Um, so that's kind of how it started. And she was she was great. And at the time, I was getting into a lot of trouble outside of school. And my teachers and actually the, the school cook, who also doubled up as a receptionist, was, was like, oh, actually, Merlin really likes doing this. And they really sort of nurtured encouraged it. me and nurtured, nurtured it. And that's how I got into cooking. And then actually from... And then it all happened really fast. And then I... I she must be that. so proud of you now. I hope, I hope she's still in your life somewhere. Have you come back and said, look, uh, look what I've done? Yeah, she, well, she, yeah, she came, she actually came she? to eat at Portland. That's so nice. We just opened and won a Michelin star. And yeah, it was really nice. I mean, we've lost touch now, but um, I haven't forgotten her. If she's listening, okay, Joanna, good. Um, <laughs> thinking of you. So yeah, I suppose that was, there was a kind of, it happened really fast. And I went from being this teenager who didn't give a fuck about anything and wasn't interested in anything. Yeah. I think that happens to teenagers, especially boys. It's just sort of like, just not interested in anything. I was only interested in getting into trouble. And suddenly became t- utterly <laughs> obsessed with being a chef. And also not just being any old chef, like being the best chef in the world. Right. Proving everyone wrong. Well, you got, that, that's quite interesting. I feel like that kind of turning know, that anger weird. in. Weird. I, ch- I completely changed in the space of a few months. Um, God, your parents are became so, so focused. And then I spent <laughs> 10 years not doing anything other than focusing on being the best chef I could be, which was hard because actually wasn't, I wasn't particularly good at it for, for the first sort of eight, Really? No, I'm yeah. sure. that No, it was terrible. There must have been some amazing encouragement along the way or something that said, no, I can, I can do this. Well, you know what? I, I knew I wasn't very good, but I also really loved it. So I really persevered because I should have given, I mean, most people would have given up, you know, especially when I was working in France and stuff and you just get treated like shit. And, really? you know, I was working in some of the top restaurants and, and, I, and I wasn't good enough. But but do you, when you go to those restaurants, do you go, right, okay, these are all the best restaurants. This is where I want to be working. And then you go and you, you get that place or the stage or what, like. Yeah. So when I was in Switzerland, I, I just, I just thought I'm going to work in the best restaurant in Switzerland. So I applied and, and it's not, you know. Getting a job in a really good restaurant is not as hard as you imagine because the staff turnover is huge and they just, it's like sink or swim, you know, they, they give you a job and if you're not good enough, you, you'll know pretty quickly. So anyway, so I, I should have given up. Most people would have given up in my position, but because I knew I wasn't really good enough, but I, I loved it so much. Like the, I loved food and restaurants and that, and that sort of world so much that I kind of, I just persevered. But it was also an environmental thing. I think I, I ended up, at the restaurant that I was talking about earlier in Belgium in an environment that was much more attuned to the kind of person I am, much, much more friendly, much more appreciative and uh, nurturing. And that's where I really flourished. And have you taken any of that ethos with you uh, into the restaurants that you've then kind of headed up and, you know, won stars with? Is, like, yeah, 100%. The way, the, the, the way, way that I run and- my kitchens has... All, I, I took everything that I thought didn't work from previous places I worked, everything that I thought was wrong, everything that I thought was kind of holding, you know, holding me back from being a better chef. And I sort of abolished that. And I, I created an environment which I hope or which I believe allows people to really thrive and, and flourish and, and and sort of gives, give, I guess, gives people confidence. What what I think was lacking in those sort of restaurants, and still is now, is, is, is a lack of sort of encouragement or gratitude or people saying thank you or... Yeah. Actually, what I thought was really strange, but it's the, it was the norm then and I think still is now, is that no one actually takes an interest in you as a person or as a chef and sits down with you and says, okay, well, what do you actually want? Like, where do you want to go with your career? What 
What yeah. are you trying to achieve? How can I help no you HR. get there? It's like they take, <laughs> they take, you know, they they take the the labor and the hard work, and there's no that's it. Which yeah. feels like such a waste because essentially people are there because they're passionate about food and mm. what they can create, and you know, and presumably everyone has a kind of trajectory they want to meet or the you know a direction they want to go or they want to eventually have their own restaurant and so it's you a think, collaboration because if your yeah. employees think that you're invested in that you're invested in their future they will work harder for you and they will also stay with you for longer because yeah. it's a it's a partnership you know totally. like you're helping them further their career and they're helping you progress the, the restaurant the quality of your food i hear about these you know michelin star restaurants in london where they you know they they say oh yeah the chef he's trying to get three michelin stars but he also makes his chef work 19 hours a day and they are the sort of average chef stays only three months in one place. And you sort of think, well, how are you ever going to get that consistency good enough to really be the best that you can possibly be if if, if your staff keep leaving all the time? Because yeah. they're never going to be good enough. And if they're always exhausted and tired, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a funny, I don't understand it. Yeah, but, um, no, I understand. What would you say the motivations uh, behind moving out of London were and moving to the countryside? And has it in some way just been a total blessing given like the pandemic, obviously not opening a restaurant and then the pandemic happening, but has, you know, being in the countryside, has it been kind of amazing? Because I feel like in the press at the moment, it's constantly kind of, you know, get out in nature, save your sanity, you know, <laughs> do that, be out, walk, look at the trees, look at the sky. I, you know, has it been a, a bizarre blessing in disguise to be out of London and in yeah, the countryside? I, I don't. I spent five years living in London, and for me, that was. I mean, I did open three restaurants, so it was never going to be like chilled. Any days off? No, and that's the thing, also. <laughs> but when you're in London, even if I was having a day off because I was in London and I was so closely connected with my work and you know now especially with your phone and your email and twitter and stuff it's impossible to really switch off and i found that's what really exhausted me of london is just never being able to feel truly relaxed yeah and i found that whenever i left london even if it was just to see my family or i'd relax and and that was that was why one of the main reasons i just suddenly decided to get out quite quite quickly yeah it's been i can't imagine what it would have been like to live in london over the yeah. last two years you know with everything that's been going on and so I am very very fortunate to be here because although you know we've we've all been adhering to the same guidelines you know across the country there's something about being in the countryside where you just don't feel so trapped you know I've been yeah. able to it doesn't cultivate so my vegetables and cycle to the garden yeah. and you know sit outside my house and watch the sunset and drink a beer and you know like a barbecue and and I feel so privileged actually to yeah, be able to do that. That sounds really nice. And your home here is really beautiful and it well how would like how would you describe this actually? It's like how old is this building? Like oh, oh, it's got some really modern touches, but like it's a very old building. It's really kind of beautiful yeah. features and I things. think all the buildings on this street are deceptively beautiful and old and also quite big. You know, they've yeah. got big cellars and really? big gardens and they go quite far back. Um, they don't look that big from the outside. Well, I don't know. I don't know how old it is. I'm impressed though that you that you have managed to kind of find somewhere that's got a very big oven. Yeah. And what have you got? Six hobs up there? That no, was, you haven't. You've got. That was yeah, what six. sold it. Was it? Was me. it the? Yeah, because it's really important for me for obvious reasons yeah. to have a a comfortable <laughs> kitchen. Yeah. I've lived in some really nice houses that have had not very nice kitchens, and yeah, it's the heart of the home. We know this. <laughs> well, I, funnily enough, cooking is 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 can be quite stressful especially professionally but 
people often ask me how I unwind and I actually find cooking at home really relaxing. Yeah, I do. Because there's no time pressure. Yeah. I put some nice music on. You've got a glass reggae, of wine. Oh, reggae. glass okay. of wine. Yeah. I take my time. I'm really slow when I cook at home. Are you? Like How messy are you? No, you're not no, I'm really, I'm not yeah. messy at all. It's not with that trait. Not with that classical French training. There's no mess. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. What type of stuff are you cooking at home just kind of day to day? I don't know. At the moment, I'm cooking well we cook with a lot of vegetables because because yeah. we basically we i don't go shopping you know most of the year that's so nice we, i just eat things that we've grown because there's always a surplus um but yeah i cook a lot of italian food at the moment yeah yeah i was as i was saying i spent a lot of time in italy over the last few years and it's just it feels like you know the minimum input maximum kind of it's i don't know the joy, you, it's just joy pasta, and if you have really good produce you really don't need to work very hard at all no yeah. and i feel like that is probably the well that's like pasta came from you know yeah. it's such as the ingredients that make it very simple and yeah i feel like it is one of life's greatest pleasures and i'm actually um for the first time in my life i'm two months clean of um pasta no sugar and kind of carbs Blimey. in my day i'm just trying that and Make, but still making it for my husband. Okay. Because that's, I, that's, oh, that's I'm a devoted cool. wife. Yeah. Just like really sat there really close to him watching him eat pasta. But gluten-free pasta? Oh, no, it's not even to cut out gluten. I just kind of, my friend was like, try this. And I was okay. like, oh, okay. Like, I've never, I've never adhered to diets. I don't agree with them. And I was like, you know, I can show some restraint. I've okay. never exercised this before. And so, yeah, no carbs and no, no sugar. Okay. I have to say it's not enjoyable. Yeah. I'm eating a lot of cheese. But also I'm actually trying to eat, because my husband's vegetarian, I'm actually trying to eat a lot of vegetables still. Mm. Like I don't want to, I don't want to be consuming meat for breakfast, lunch and dinner. That's, I just don't, I don't agree with that. I don't enjoy that. And so it's finding ways of doing it in a kind of very vegetarian friendly way. So I'm not. So I, I mean, I just did nine day cleanse. This with I'm Michelle, impressed my partner, with, yeah. And it was incredibly strict and celery juice in the morning lemon water and all of the meals were no carbs no oil no dairy no meat um so basically just plain vegetables just with no not even salt and admittedly i sort of crumbled halfway through and i started adding olive oil and salt to, to my yeah. food because otherwise i just couldn't do i could it. just have those alone and, and i allowed myself to have coffee because you won't allow caffeine either but apart from that i pretty much stuck to it How i did didn't find myself missing i really enjoyed it yeah. The, the meals in the evening, just vegetables with olive oil and salt for nine days. I really loved it. And I've been off it for a couple of days. And although it's quite nice to be able to have a cake or something, I haven't felt like desperate to just eat yeah. all the things that I wasn't eating. It's quite nice. It's yeah. really refreshing. Yeah. Well, today coming into the old pharmacy and seeing all your cakes and mm. um, pastries and <laughs> cookies. <laughs> that was just for me. That was like one step too far. I was like, I've I cracked got, you, didn't you've cracked, yeah, yeah, totally. I was like, I need that cookie. And I need specifically that one with the, it had a lot of chocolate in. Yeah. And then obviously I went outside and my husband's like, oh yeah, share that. <laughs> <laughs> I did not want to share that. We have to talk about this and I don't know why I've wasted till now to talk to you about it. You were 24 when you won your first Michelin star. Was this trajectory to success something that you always knew you wanted to achieve? And did you set out with that in mind for the Portland specifically? Were mm -hmm. you like, you know, you, I know you said you wanted to be the best you could be, but was the star always the thing that would kind of define that? Yeah, Portland was quite a strange moment in my career because I, I did say that I, I'd always worked and trained in Michelin style restaurants and kind of glorified that that sort of style of cooking, that style of restaurant. But funnily enough, when I moved back to the UK from my trip abroad, I didn't really, I was so young, I was 23. So young. I'd been offered 
a job to be head chef in a restaurant with some people I didn't really know. And all I thought was, okay, I've been away for like seven years. Quite nice to come home, see my family. All my friends were living in London at that point. My friends I hadn't seen for years. And that was all my, I didn't really think about the restaurant that much. I thought, I'm just going to come back to the UK, take this job for a bit, which will allow me to afford to actually live in London. And that was as far as I'd thought about my career. A couple of years before that, I'd been a sort of chef de party. So someone very early on in my career. And so I took this job to open this restaurant without really having a plan for it. And that was Portland. And Portland kind of blew up within like a few weeks of it opening. You know, it was like it was fully booked for... What was it? What do you think was the essence of what kind of bought people and made like... I have no idea. I just completely and utterly took me by surprise. I was so not ready for it. I just, I didn't know what was going on. It was completely overwhelming. It was my first head chef job as well, so... That's such an achievement. That's... Yeah, that so... That is quite... I, um, I never had a plan. I'm not sure if I even have a plan now. I've got a bit more of a plan. I feel like you've got a plan. <laughs> so Portland, I didn't know. I didn't set out to get a Michelin star for Portland. And I didn't, I, when we won one, I was completely in shock because we that was never part of the plan and I actually remember meeting the Michelin inspector what did they eat what did you serve them well they came a few times but the first time they came they did this thing that they do sometimes sometimes they don't do it where they sort of um, announce themselves they introduce themselves I thought it was very undercover yes it's really I don't understand but uh, anyway this uh, this one time that they 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 said, hey, you know, I'm from Michelin, had a really nice meal last night. And they sort of interviewed, well, they asked me what I wanted. And they asked me, one of the questions they asked me is if I was planning on getting a Michelin star. And I was like, of course not. And um, anyway. Uh, leading. And then we, 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 yeah, so then we got one and that was a bit of a shock. What did they, yeah, what did they eat though? Do you remember what you served them? Oh, I like- can't remember what the first guy had. I remember thinking that he'd had a bit of a crappy meal they they came about three or four times right, I, right. I can't remember what they ate but i i was aware because i worked in michelin star restaurants so many years i knew how to sort of spot a michelin inspector or at least i thought i did and i was right actually at portland when i thought i saw them i was usually right <laughs> and at ossip i've got to be honest they're, they're not as their disguise isn't as good as they think it is. <laughs> yeah. Is it kind of like Inspector Morsar? That's what I'm thinking now. That it's like a, a hat li- and a little bit, cravat. Yeah. So I, I, I will admit that it was part of the plan for us. Like, was it? Yeah, yeah this was going to be my yeah. next question. Yeah. And is there a formula? Do you feel like you've cracked it? You like? I haven't paid much attention to what the, you know, I in the last year, we got a couple of visits and I thought I should probably check what, if there is a criteria and then so I sort of googled it and I realized that obviously they're pretty cagey about it. you're not supposed to know what the criteria is but they do say that it's for a one Michelin star tends to be for um I think it's uh well it's obviously consistency yeah good produce it's all about the food yeah apparently not nothing for service not I at thought, that level I don't right. think or I, I I'm not sure if I believe that over I think if the service was really crap yeah, yeah for sure and because um, it's the experience as a whole should be. Mm. And um, what was the other thing? Are they, I think they like to see that the chef has a bit of identity, you know, their own style or personality right, or right. character. So I thought, well, you know, that's probably 
all achieve pool. So, you know, we did our best. And you're feeling good about it. You've got to. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good amazing. about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what? I was actually looking up how the Michelin Guides started out and it was yeah. two brothers in France. It's over 100 years old, maybe even like coming up to 120 or something like that. But they they didn't realize that they actually started it as a way for people to buy more tires. Yeah. So they would put together these guides so people would travel further, they destinations and restaurants, hotels. Yeah. I was like, this is, it's incredible that it's carried on and kind of picked up such momentum. Yeah. And is so kind of revered today. It's like so important. It's such a, it can kind of make or break. I know. Not make or break, but it can really make a restaurant and a chef. It, it is a... Uh, and it's the, restu- uh, it's the restaurant that gets it, not the chef, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. It is bizarre because it's a tire company. You yes. Know, like, you know, yeah. all the prestigious sort of institutions <laughs> in the world. <laughs> like when you kind of break it down, you're like, what? <laughs> What do you think have been the biggest challenges that you've overcome as a chef and now a restaurateur? I mean, the pandemic, maybe? Yeah, I I think that um, every time I've opened a restaurant, there have been new challenges. And um, it doesn't necessarily get easier with experience. So opening Portland was really traumatic. As I was explaining, I had no experience and I wasn't ready for London, how busy it was going to be. And, you know, finding staff and all that sort of stuff was just, it was, I mean... It was unbelievably traumatic. And opening Osset was also incredibly traumatic because I was completely on my own. I had no business partner, no backer. I, you know, I wasn't working with people that were particularly experienced. Again, I struggled to find the right staff. The build, the construction did not go to plan at all. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any investors. And so it was really, really hard. But it's kind of all slowly starting to work out. The people came, the people came, they ate. And then um, the pandemic has been, I mean, opening, so we opened Portland, uh, sorry, we opened OSIP um, for three months and then we went into the first lockdown. Yeah. And then we've obviously closed it twice since then. So we've been closed, I think, for longer than we've been open. Right. So it's been really frustrating to not actually have a good go at being a restaurant. Yeah. But at the same time, I've built two mini sort of farms i've opened a shop yep. a wine bar cafe i've i've had so much time to re sort of analyze and um refine the idea of what i want to do with osip and um well here in somerset that i'm not sure if i'm not sure if i would have rather just been open the whole time we you know this but th- there are so many positives that have come yeah. out of this situation that I'm also kind of grateful in some ways, yeah, if I'm course. allowed to say that. Yeah, of course you can. I yeah. think, I mean, of course. You talk a lot about creating um, your dishes simply by being in conversation with local suppliers, using what's at its freshest and ultimately what's in season and available. How much of a challenge can that be on occasions? It can be really challenging, especially when you come from a, a sort of culture of being a cook, or especially being a cook in London, you sort of, you can literally order whatever you want. Yeah. And so if you want, you know, and it makes cooking really interesting especially sort of high-end food a lot easier yeah whereas if you're standing like right now we're in what we call the hunger gap where actually spring produce hasn't really started you see in in you know shops and supermarkets you see things like asparagus and stuff like that but it's It's not really in season yeah it's you know it's it's still imported or grown you know um i don't really know how they do it but but we're we're at a stage where we're still you know we don't we hardly have anything to cook with we've kind of the 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 winter produce is almost finished and the spring produce hasn't begun and you've just got things like 
kale and beetroots and things that you've already been cooking with for the last six months that you're totally fed up with. Right. And you're like, well, how can I make this a dish in a Michelin star restaurant? You know, because you can't just order some foie gras or some lobster or some truffles or, yeah. you know, and that is super, super challenging. But that also so goes what are back. are you making? Well, nothing at the moment because the restaurant's well, closed. Okay. Luckily, you, I don't. You had to. This time next year. This time last year, the restaurant was closed as well. So I, I actually don't know. But what we, a lot of brassicas, a lot of, um, what else will we be cooking? So you have we, like the wild garlic. Yes, it, we're in wild garlic yeah. season. We, we, you know, we go mad for wild garlic when it's in season. I've just bought your wild Rhubarb. garlic pesto. Rhubarb. Yeah, that was looking very um, I recently discovered, I put a call out on Instagram because I was looking for someone to grow a specific mushroom for me. Right. An organic mushroom grower. I recently discovered that they're absolutely everywhere. People cultivating organic mushrooms and it's really? super sustainable. You can grow them in sort of old coffee grinds and stuff like that. And I and I sort of wonder why that isn't more of a thing in British restaurants using kind of British mushrooms. You know, you don't need a lot of space. Because don't they, they grow in very like damp, warm yeah. environments? I've been to a mushroom farm actually. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's all very, very interesting. Kind of yeah. Indoor heated, wet, damp. Yeah, so I think... Um, and you also can't take any germs in there. There's like, you have to really kind of net yeah, up all okay. your hair and I everything. I can imagine, yeah. Because it's a fungus. Like, they, there's very yeah. strict restrictions around... There was a local guy who was growing shiitake mushrooms for us around this time last year. And um, oyster mushrooms. So, you know, that you, you find things and that's how you create a cuisine that has its own identity by limitations in a lot of artists or... People who work in the creative industry will tell you that it's often limitations that kind of inspire the most creativity. Yeah. You have to be creative. Yeah. You have to think outside the box. So it's a blessing and a curse. Signature dishes. In also because your kind of your menu is dictated by what is available and mm. from producers and from your own allotments and kind of I should just clarify one thing about Osset. We don't actually have a menu. Yeah, you turn up and it's kind of You turn up and you don't know what's going on. You just sit down and we just say um, hi, How, thanks, yeah. thanks for coming. <laughs> and we're just going to cook for you if that's all right. And yeah. everyone says, thank you very much. That sounds nice. Or they, you know, they might say, they, we find out in advance what they don't eat, okay. of course. And so we we are creating bespoke menus from, from a kitchen point of view. We're preparing a bespoke offering for various different guests with different requirements every night. So Ultimately, there'll be a bunch of people eating the restaurant. They're not eating the same thing. And we're just cooking with what we've picked that day. So there is no menu. Could food envy be a problem? Looking at if your table's fairly close no, to the table. Well, there's to usually like a, a common agenda. <laughs> right, right. What most people will, will, will generally be eating from the same agenda. But but obviously, there's so people were, nowadays, there's so many people who are vegan, vegetarian. We, when we cook, we cook Embrace. for everybody. Yeah. So there's there's no dietary requirement that we've ever said. We can't do that. So it is a bit of, you know. And, and should should you be lucky enough to kind of get a second reservation in quick succession? Would you would that be a different menu that you would come back to a few days later, or a week later? No, we we tell people. So people ask sometimes, oh, if I wanted to come back a month later or two weeks later, would it be the same? Like, well, you can't because you can't get a reservation. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, we, we just we just tell people to let us know if they've been recently and okay. we'll cook them something different. Because we have the rooms. Sometimes people stay for three or four days and they might eat twice. So we'll do an entirely different. Oh, that's But okay. we can that's... just cook because there is no rules. You yeah. know, we, we can just make whatever. I love we do that. give people, at the end of the meal, we do give people a 
menu. A, a thing of what they've eaten, yeah, to take away with I would them. like that. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you as well, what's the process around creating that menu? Do you mm. do it very kind of, you know, on your own or so, solely by ingredients and what's available? Or, you know, is it collaborative within your team? The process, as I've probably mentioned loads of times, <laughs> starts, I oversee every part of the process. So I, I've like built the polytunnels, I've spread the manure, I've sowed the seeds, and that's like the start of the process, yeah. right? And I follow, and I think that's quite unusual for a chef. I follow yeah. that process all the way to the, to the end, you know? So I have ultimately 100% control over every part of like the food experience. And the process starts, you know, with, when I'm sowing the seeds. And that sounds a bit cheesy. But what I mean to say is like, when I'm in the garden, which I am like a few times a week, if not every day in the summer, I'm like looking around me going, oh, that's nearly ready. So that we need to start thinking about, I don't know, if the kohlrabi are getting to a point where I know they're going to be ready, then my brain is like kohlrabi dish, kohlrabi dish, kohlrabi dish. And that's, that's, and but I have a sous chef who has worked for me since he was like 17, 18. I mean, he's worked, worked for me at Portland and Clipstone. Oh, okay and OSIP and events and stuff. So I, I very much feel like he understands my food as well as I do, if not if not better sometimes. Sometimes, you know, he'll interpret my ideas much better than I even could. So it's I'll say, right, <laughs> we've got these kohlrabis, you know, and I might tell him what I want and he'll like come up with some ideas and we'll taste it together because I am, I'm not full time in the kitchen because I'm in the gardens and obviously now with the old pharmacy and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, it's a collaborative process between me and my sous chef, most of the time but they're usually my ideas first and then he takes my ideas and turns them into something that's executable for the for our kitchen which yeah. is tiny by the way i don't know if you did you see no it? i didn't see an osset by so, so my my kitchen at home is more than twice the size of my kitchen osset and how many <laughs> chefs how many chefs do you manage to we have uh one two four chefs per service plus me if i'm in the kitchen or I might be in and out of the kitchen, or I might be in the kitchen all night. It depends on what's going on on the menu. And sometimes I, I serve the guests as well, so sometimes I'm on the floor all night. Um, and we normally have an intern, but sometimes the kitchen is so small that, yeah, four people's and a kitchen porter is, like, really tight already. Yeah, so you're all pretty close. <laughs> well, yeah. Physically. Yeah. You're passionate about sustainability and preventing food waste. How big a part has that played in the restaurants that you've headed up and now for OSIP and the old pharmacy? And also, you know, do you have any tips for how other people can help reduce food waste? Like, I know that that's a huge issue environmentally, you know, the impact of food waste. Funnily enough, OSIP is a sort of culmination of all the ideas that I've had over the last five years that I thought were cool. And when I was in London, I spent a lot of time kind of talking publicly or at least within the industry about problems, you know, food waste and you know sustainability as a concept in in restaurants and 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 how we can do things better and with OSIP I just sort of I just got on with it I just do things the way that I think that they should be done and we don't make a song and dance out of it anymore but actually when I look at it I sort of think I'm pretty pleased with what what we're doing and and I think that with food waste I was I did a bit of consulting in London on, on on restaurants on topics like food waste and stuff and I think that if you start, you need to start somewhere. And I think the best place to start is looking at your menu. So when you're designing a menu, you have to be really careful about what you're using. You have to analyze each dish and think, well, if I make this and if I produce this recipe in this way, 
is it going to produce waste or byproducts? And right. if that is the case, can I create another dish that uses those byproducts or those waste products? Or can I just replace it with something that doesn't? And I think it's really hard in a restaurant when you're already doing something to then implement those changes without really stopping. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to open a new restaurant at the Conduit where we kind of started as we meant to go on. And it allowed us to for example, we, we didn't use any plastic in the kitchen. Single-use plastic was completely... And, and we found that we, we were like, well, actually, we don't need it. I mean, what do you use plastic for? Cling film. We just put lids on all our tubs. We didn't use sous vide. I mean, you know, people have been cooking for millions of years without sous vide. Like, we, we didn't, you know... And so it wasn't that difficult. And that's kind of what we did with OSIP. We, we you know, we set up the gardens. We're now going to use all of our food waste, which we turn to compost, that we then use to grow the vegetables that we use back in the restaurant. Yeah. We don't use plastic because we found ways to cook that don't require plastic. You know, we're, we're, we're super diligent with our recycling. Our food miles are, like, literally, like, you could count count the miles on our fingers. and and But it all feels easy and manageable because we're in control of every part of the process like we don't give people a menu so we can't really have food waste because if there's a food that's going to go to waste we'll sort of find a way to incorporate in that that into the menu so in in many ways OSIP could be a model for a you know and restaurants aren't sustainable you know but for a, a more sustainable restaurant I think is a really good model because we have that control over all these different processes and we started out with with kind of goals and standards um, that we intended to uphold. And here we are. Yeah, here we are. You've been very hands-on in raising funds for and cooking in person for refugees, going out to refugee camps. Uh, in Calais, did you go, is that, have I got that right? Was it Calais that you went to? I did go to Calais, yeah. I, I Most of the work I did was in, in Greece, actually. Was it? But, um, yeah, Calais was where I saw, where it sort of started. Yeah. Um, I spent a bit of time in Calais and then I was in Athens, I was in a place called Lesvos and I was in another place. And you worked with I the I worked with the Felix project with the Mass No, I worked that was a different project. But I worked with some guys who are now called Choose Love, but they were called Help Refugees when I was oh, working. Oh no way. With them. So yeah. I was actually going to bring those up as a kind of way for people yeah. to get involved. So it was it was through them. But yeah, so I was sort of part of Amazing with charity them. with Josie. With Josie. Yeah. yeah, amazing. They are an incredible charity. They're amazing. I, yeah, because yeah. I was actually going to say in terms of other people getting involved, it's an incredible charity where you can go online and you buy bundles of whether it's um, a tent or hot food or, you know, educational care or mental health. Like there's all sorts of packs that you buy and and it gets delivered direct to refugees. Yeah. And it's one of the most inspiring organizations. She's amazing, isn't she? She's done. And you can go and buy the merchandise and all of that, which the money goes to support these yeah. incredible like, ventures because they're they're properly on the ground i mean you tell us because you've been yeah i mean they they uh ha- it's quite hard to sort of summarize what they do as an organization because they do so many different things but they are i think one of the biggest and most prominent organizations that are helping refugees um all over the world and they're sort of i think i suppose the main thing that they're doing is fundraising but also making sure that these displaced people are getting the help they need whether it be you know, connecting them with other charities that help with water sanitization yeah. or legal, like, legal stuff or, um, you know, making sure that the children, are, you know, their education isn't being forgotten about, they're getting fed or, you know, the, the, the medical stuff. And so they're connecting with all kinds of organizations like Medicine Sans Frontieres or anything really. You know, I, I, I when I was there, I was hanging out with people who were just coming in 
as a charity organization to help sort of unblock the toilets, you know, so right. that it's, yeah. You weren't so. doing that bit. I wasn't doing that. No. <laughs> you were I cooking. was cooking. Yes. Yeah. Um, and like cooking for, you know, a thousand people a day or something. Yeah. Incredible. That's, I mean, and enormously eye-opening how... It was an incredible experience. It was, I can't remember, words can't really describe. You can't, I can't, I think words won't do it justice, but it was, as a chef, it was quite a weird juxtaposition of cooking in like a private members club in Mayfair. And then next week I'm in like a, a sort of metal shack, you know, cooking for like a thousand people who haven't eaten for like three days who are queuing up and absolutely starving and living in the most like inhumane conditions and really connecting with them and talking to them and and, and hearing their story and then realizing the plight and all that all that we don't hear about and that we don't see in the news and stuff like that but you really have to know what these people are going through you really have to go there and see it because mm-hmm. they actually you realize when you're there that the media and the government they don't they don't want people to know what's actually going on so i would do a whole nother podcast yeah on that. <laughs> absolutely and you know um Someone that who Imad who does Imad's oh, kitchen no, yeah. and he his story is incredible and people should follow him and, and like embrace what he does because his food is delicious and incredible. And I went to a dinner where I heard his story and what he'd been through and you know mm. people are doing what what is best or how, you know for their families to to bring their families to a safer space and yeah. it's what you know I just think yeah incredible I think Imad's kitchen he's an amazing person to follow and his story for and sure yeah well, I did a dinner with him did you. And Thomasina Myers and Nuno Mendes and Sky from Spring. Yeah. With Choose Love. And it was Amazing. it was so beautiful. I yeah. Bet. It was really nice. And, a fundraiser dinner. And are you able to kind of continue to work with those charities while being out in I, again, I mean, I, I moved here and we went into lockdown yeah, and I've just been everything. focusing on, uh, I haven't really left, but I would definitely love to get to get involved in some more Do projects. More. With them. I'm curious, who has been the kind of greatest inspiration for you food wise? Are there any particular chefs that really inspire you or restaurants that you, you know, you love and you go back to time and time again? Mm. No, no. <laughs> no, <laughs> no exactly. I have been asked. I've been, it's not the first time I've been asked no, that I'm question. Sure. And there isn't like... I'm always curious. The, the, um, I think I said that the chef that I worked for in Belgium yeah. um, was Did the he... biggest inspiration on my cooking and possibly on my career. There's no kind of like iconic culinary figures that I always reference, but I really love what um, Sky does uh, in the UK. I think she, she's got a, such a beautiful approach to food and cooking and restaurants, um, and she's so sweet. I, I love what Alice Waters has done in America with Chez Panisse and the work she's done with schools. And, yeah. and I think Massimo Batura has done some amazing work with you know his Food for Soul project and yeah. the Felix project, opening people's eyes to you know what can be achieved with with food as a sort of as a force for change you know socially separate to having free mission stars and being a a great chef but yeah no that's it really and i love fergus henderson his writing and his books and everything that he stands for just because he's a he's a dude (laughs) (laughs) what do you consider to be your biggest achievement today and what's next for you those are two two questions (laughs) two questions Um, both quite big ones i'm quite proud of the fact that i opened um ossip by myself and kind of built it to what it is now, which is still very at the early, very early stages of its development. And I now have an amazing team around me and who have really contributed to what it's become in the last sort of six months and continue to contribute so much. But I am, I'm really proud of us. Yeah, it's sort of, it, I, I had an idea and a vision of what I wanted the restaurant to be. And I think it's exceeded my own expectations, which 
Amazing. Which weren't, maybe weren't even that high, but, and it's very small kind of almost little ecosystem that we set up here with the farming and the restaurant and now the shop. It's really nice. Yeah, yeah, I concur. <laughs> and future projects? What's what? I mean, I don't don't want to say what's next for you because this is very yeah. Now this um, is. I don't know actually. I'd like to just develop the the things that I'm doing and let them kind of evolve organically and also reach their full potential. Yeah, you know, free of any uh, pandemic uh, constraints and yeah. So on. Talking, I guess, about achievements, a regular feature on the podcast is the sandwich finale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've been fortunate enough to eat some epic um, sandwiches, creations, yep. some. Talk me through what you're going to make for me today. So I'm going to make a sandwich that's inspired by a recent, my most recent trip to Sicily. So I went to Sicily in the last lockdown, which was in November for one month. And Michelle, my partner, was, and some friends of ours were shooting a film out there. So I just went out there and stayed there. And it was funny because it, well, maybe funny is not the right word, but it was interesting because Italy was also in lockdown. So all the things that you associate with like a trip to Italy, like you couldn't do. You the know, cafe a bit culture, like here. the, yeah. Everything was closed apart from shops. So I felt like I sort of lived, but the markets were still kind of open. So I sort of lived a bit like a real Italian, you Local. know, we, I didn't really do much. It was kind of sometimes a little bit boring. I went shopping every day and I and I kind of felt like I learned to cook a bit more like the Italians cook at home. But there was one sandwich place that I'd go to in um, Sicily. It's famous for pistachios. So where whereabouts in Sicily were you? I was in Notto, yeah? which is the most one of the most beautiful places. So where they have um, Cafe Sicilia. Cafe Sicilia, which sadly amazing. was closed. <laughs> yeah. I uh, almost actually posted a picture of a feast we had there because they yeah. do the brioche buns with yeah. the amazing granita inside, which in my mind still doesn't quite work. But it does when it you're does. in Sicily. Yeah, right. um, sorry. So I was there. <laughs> uh, so you've been? Oh, yeah, I've been. It's Notto, it's incredible. And... Um, a lot of the inspiration behind the old pharmacy kind of came from that little trip because they have the little pasta, what they call pasta feet, you know, a little shop where there's like a, just an old lady who just makes pasta all day and you yeah, just yeah. go and grab your sauce and your pasta and you take it home and cook it. And that's how we, we lived for a month. But anyway, I had these sandwiches and I remember having one that was like a, it was like a potato bread or a focaccia with pistachio pesto, which is just the most amazing thing yeah. in itself. The pistachios are so good there and potatoes something called stracciatella yeah it's like a creamy mozzarella yeah. like very creamy and mortadella a mortadella is my favorite i eat that just yeah as this and it's basically it's a kind of the equivalent of the spam or something it's like it's, very it, processed corn, yeah like corned beef but um, it's so delicious so i'm gonna make an interpretation of that so i've got some amazing focaccia i've got some amazing mortadella i've got some burrata I've got this beautiful pink um, Trevisano radicchio, and I've grown made by a, yourself. Not grown by myself, um, and I've made a wild garlic and walnut pesto. I feel like this is my perfect day to not be uh, yeah, on, gonna, the, on the diet. You're gonna, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna rip out of your hands. And just before we start, I just want to know, <laughs> this is so ridiculous, but I'm always really curious about how people feel about condiments. And I feel like you're someone that does a lot of pickling and fermenting and mm-hmm. like percentage wise, where's your fridge at? Because I'm operating at maybe two, three shelves for condiments. We've actually got quite a lot of condiments in yeah. our fridge. Yeah. Any recommendations? So I made something recently. Actually, my sous chef made it, but I think I can take credit for the idea. <laughs> Although I don't think it was even my idea. I think I, I think it's been definitely been done before. But we've been making cider mustard. 
And so basically it's mustard seeds that we soak in. And I think it's important to use really good cider. We've been using really good cider with a little bit of honey right. and also some vinegar. And that in itself becomes like a grain mustard. But we've done something. We sort of take half of the seeds out, blend it so it's smooth, and then mix, fold that back into the rest of the grain. So it kind of looks like a whole grain mustard, but it tastes like cider, but like really good cider. And it's kind of sweet. Okay. And will you be selling that at the old pharmacy? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is if, it in there now or no? We actually made it and I forgot to put it in the jars and sell it. <laughs> so <laughs> this will be for my return visit. Next weekend. Okay. Maybe tomorrow. Okay. okay. Uh, so I've been having that with lots of things. And also we seem to have a lot of different Chinese condiments. We have this amazing one that's got peanuts and chili. It's like a sort of chili oil with mm-hmm. peanuts. Yeah. I don't want to try and pronounce the name because I'm going to get it wrong. Yeah. And there's a similar one that's just the chili oil. Yes. And then the black bean one. And then there's the black bean one. Yeah. So we, we those are really good. I think with really plain food, like just steamed yeah. cabbage or rice or noodles. Yeah. I've well, also that in a got, congee, I'm like, I've like got a chili oil that says like the lucky cat or lucky di- and I, it's made by someone who's friends right. of friends of ours in London. But I can't remember. Who. It was so we inherited this chili oil. Nice. Basically, it's really good. Yeah, yeah. And now you have your new chili oil that I have. It's not really an oil. It's more of a chili. It's like a sun-dried what would you chili. Call that? I think it's just a condiment, isn't it's it? A, it's yeah. not. Not just a. I mean, I couldn't yeah. have that, but yeah. it's a. It's a premium condiment. It's the condiment. It's the, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, I have to just say thank you so much um, for having me in your home today. And absolute um, pleasure. This has been so nice. Thank you yeah, so much, and likewise. good luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this week on The Filling. You can follow me at Anna Barnett Cooks on Instagram for exclusive visuals of my guests' fabulous kitchens and for the recipe to recreate their go-to sandwiches. And of course, subscribe to The Filling on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. The music for today's podcast was recorded by Pony Bones. Pony Bones.